0: This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union please check out Life on Record. Once the Knights of Labor declined, a new national labor organization came to the fore. The American Federation of Labor, AFL, was founded in December in 1886 in Columbus, Ohio, at a convention called by the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions. The AFL's founding president, re-elected almost every year until his death in 1924, was cigar-making Samuel Gompers an English immigrant of Dutch-Jewish descent. The AFL took up where the Knights of Labor had left off. In 1890, the Federation revived the eight-hour campaign, selected the Brotherhood of Carpenters to be the first union to strike, and urged all unionists to demonstrate in support on May 1st. The Carpenters won the eight-hour day for more than 46,000 members, In the early years, the sympathy strike characterized the AFL style. Otherwise, the federation sharply distinguished itself from the Knights of Labor. It did not run candidates for public office. In contrast to the order's centralized structure, the AFL Executive Council upheld the autonomy of affiliating unions. Council intervened only to mediate between affiliates disputing jurisdictions to provide support for organizing drives and strikes. Not wanting to go out on strikes without adequate resources, the AFL encouraged affiliates to set high initiation fees and dues. The AFL concentrated on organizing highly skilled workers. The AFL's initial membership was overwhelmingly male and white, reflecting the composition of skilled trades. Of 13 founding unions, Only the cigar makers and the topographers admitted women, and none included many men of color. By 1892, another 27 national unions had affiliated, many of them formed by defectors from the Knights of Labor. New members were the Boots and Shoes Workers International Union, the United Mine Workers, the National Union of Textile Workers, and the United Garment Workers. The textile, garment, and shoe unions all had substantial female membership, but a fifth of the United Mine Workers members in the coal fields were black men. F. L. headquarters lent verbal support to women's organizing drives, but seldom came through with much more. In 1892, the Executive Council hired the Chicago Bookbinder Mary Kinney as the Federation's first general organizer of women, but in October the Executive Council abolished Kinney's post. By the late 1890s, all but a handful of the Federation's national affiliates had amended their constitution to allow for female membership, but a great many kept women out in other ways, through high initiation fees, for instance, or special examinations for female applicants. Starting in 1891, the Executive Council employed black men as general organizers. That spring, black workers on the St. Louis River front initiated a week-long walkout that soon spread to their white counterparts and ended with wage increases across the board. In late October, black and white workers on the New Orleans docks launched a joint strike that culminated in an interracial walkout of 25,000 working men from 49 different unions. Finally, they agreed to negotiate and the dock workers won their demands for shorter hours, higher wages, and overtime pay. From the start, the Federation barred workers of Asian ancestry and gompers lobbied hard for extensions of the Chinese Exclusion Act when it came up for renewal in 1892 and again in 1902. By the latter year, AFL spokesmen we're also calling for laws to limit immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe, and the Federation's Executive Council no longer refused to charter national unions whose constitutions stipulated that only white workers could join. Black and white locals would presumably merge once white workers were educated away from what Gompers called the ridiculous attempt to draw the color line as a permanent arrangement, the best way to organize workers of color without arousing bitterness among whites. The stress on craft unionism, together with hefty dues and initiation fees, inevitably distanced the federation from workers outside the skilled, relatively high-paying trades nor could the afl strategy protect union craftsmen from assault by monopoly capitalists never was that more evident than when the amalgamated association of iron and steel workers squared off against the steel baron andrew carnegie in the summer and fall of 1892 at carnegie's mill in homestead pennsylvania less than a quarter of the 3800 employees belonged to the union, whose agreement with the company placed the skilled men at Homestead among the best paid workers in the land. Determined to expand his power and profits, Carnegie decided that when the amalgamated contract expired on June 30, 1892, the Homestead Mill would become a non-union plant. To that end, he turned over the mill's management to Henry Clay Frick, well known in western Pennsylvania for his hatred of unions and ruthless suppression of strikes. Frick announced the company's intention to cut union men's wages by an average of 10%. Then, on May 30th, he issued an ultimatum. If the men did not accept the new wage scale, by June 24th, the company would no longer recognize their union. When the amalgamated held firm, he went to war. Shutting down the mill on June 30th, and hiring the Pinkerton Detective Agency to reopen it with scab labor. In the wee hours of July 6, about 300 armed Pinkertons tried to sneak into the plant, traveling on barges that silently pulled up to the company's beat Monogonala River. But a patrol of workers had spotted the barges and sounded the alarm. As the Pinkertons landed, and the angry crowd of homesteaders streamed down to the beach, and both sides opened fire. The invaders surrendered after a day-long battle that killed seven workers and three Pinkertons. When Governor Robert Pattison sent 8,000 militiamen to Homestead on July 12, the Amalgamated welcomed the intervention. A Union spokesman declared, On behalf of the Amalgamated Association, I wish to say that after suffering an attack of illegal authority, we are glad to have the legal authority of the state here. The militia had arrived at Frick's request, however. It was there to safeguard the company, not the townspeople. By the end of the month, the mill was starting to produce still with a force of scabs the Pinkerton Agency had recruited from Pittsburgh. The criminal justice system came to Frick's aid too. As the mill reopened, He orchestrated mass indictments of strike leaders on charges of murder, conspiracy and treason. This campaign only gained momentum after July 23rd, when Frick was seriously wounded by Alexander Berkman, a young anarchist from New York who had tried to assassinate him. By October, 185 criminal indictments had been issued, with some men charged four or five times. No one was convicted but the legal battles decimated the union strike fund. In November, unskilled workers petitioned the amalgamated for release from their pledge of support, and the union declared the strike over. The union's membership fell from 24,000 in 1891 to 8,000 in 1895. Mills owned by the Carnegie Steel Company, later sold to J.P. Morgan, and renamed United States Steel, would remain union-free for two generations. Two years later, troops and courts combined to put down a mass railroad strike led by a new industrial union, whose members came together regardless of skill. The five railroad brotherhoods, engineers, conductors, firemen, brakemen, and switchmen, were all the more exclusive and prudential. They ignored semi-skilled and unskilled employees, tried to drive African Americans out of the industry, and seldom honored one another's strikes. In the fall of 1892, rank-and-file railroad workers met secretly in Chicago to plan an organization built up for all classes of railroad men. The American Railway Union, ARU, went public on June 20, 1893. Its membership opened to all white railroad employees except superintendents and corporate officials, with a national initiation fee and yearly dues a dollar each. Eugene Debs, editor of the locomotive Fireman's Magazine, became the ARU's president after winning an 18-day strike against the Great Northern Railroad in April 1894. The union began to sign up 2,000 new members a day. By June, it was the nation's largest union, with 150,000 members in 425 lodges. Among them were 4,000 workers who manufactured railroad passenger cars at the Pullman's Palace Car Company complex in Pullman, Illinois, near Chicago. George Pullman ran a company town keeping rents high while he reduced wages. When the ARU's Pullman's Lodges went on strike on May 11, 1894, he closed the plants. In June, the strikers appealed to the ARU's first national convention, It is victory or death to you we confide our cause. Do not desert us as you hope not to be deserted. The convention authorized a boycott beginning June 26, No ARU member would work on any train that included Pullman's cars. When the railroad companies refused to detach the cars, the boycott became a general strike. Within three days, and despite opposition from the railroad brotherhoods, 150,000 strikers shut down 11 lines to widespread sympathy fed by public resentment of the rail corporations. Two days into the strike, U.S. Attorney General Richard Olney sought advice from Edwin Walker, counsel to the Railroads General Managers Association. Walker recommended getting an injunction based on the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, a vaguely worded and rarely invoked federal law directed against monopolies involved in interstate trade. On July 2nd, citing damage to interstate commerce and criminal conspiracy to obstruct Postal Service, the Federal District Court in Chicago enjoined all interference with rail operations, including any attempt to persuade any railroad employee not to work. The next day, President Grover Cleveland ordered federal troops to enforce the order. Over the next few days, at least 25 civilians were killed, and the Illinois Central Railroad Yards went up in flames. Across the country, newspapers' headlines reported, Mom Bent on Ruin, "Anarchist on Way to America from Europe, and Anarchists and Socialists said to be planning the destruction and looting of the Treasury. Eugene Dabb and other ARU officers were arrested on July 10th. An emergency committee called for a general strike in Chicago the next day But only 25,000 workers turned out. Many unions awaited the decision of an AFL executive conference convened by Gompers at Chicago's Briggs Hotel on July 12. It contributed $1,000 to a legal defense fund, but agreed only to help Debs make an offer to call off the boycott if his members could return to their jobs. With that, the strike collapsed. Rearrested on July 17th, Debs and other strike leaders were later convicted of violating the federal injunction and the U.S. Supreme Court denied their appeal. He served six months, fellow defendants three. By 1897, the ARU had all but disappeared. Just two dozen delegates showed up at its national convention that June. The 1893 crash and depression hurt farmers and small businesses as well as wage workers. And resentment of monopoly control of the government was widespread. The People's Party, often called the Populists, provided an opportunity to act. The party grew out of the Farmers' Alliances, which had preached agrarian organization against monopoly since the late 1870s, when the movement was born in Texas. The movement's 1889 convention adopted a St. Louis program that was bold and practical. It called for nationalizing the railroads, breaking up large land-holding companies, abolishing national banks, instituting a graduated income tax, and creating federal sub-treasuries that would lend money at nominal interest. In 1890, Alliance men entered electoral politics, gained control of many state governments in the South and Midwest, and won more than 40 seats in Congress. At its first convention held in Omaha, Nebraska, in July 1892, the People's Party expanded the Alliance program to include bimetallism, a plan to increase the money supplied by supplementing federal gold reserves with silver and, in a nod to organized labor, called also for a shorter weekday and restrictions on immigration. In 1894, populist candidates received 4.5 million votes, taking enough voters from Democrats to make the Republican Party the majority party. At the Federation's National Convention in Denver in December 1894, the delegates adopted most of the socialist program, but Gompers managed to defeat two crucial proposals, for social ownership of the means of production and for independent political action. Labor activists learned a few different lessons from the devastating defeats of the Homestead and Pullman strikes, Eugene Debs and his comrades saw the need for even greater solidarity. Samuel Gompers and many craft unionists concluded that it was futile to challenge the combined might of big business and government. Judicious, pure, and simple unionism works best. Years later, Gompers said of the Briggs House Conference, the course pursued by the Federation was the biggest service that could have been performed to maintain the integrity of the railroad brotherhoods. In 1898, the United States moved into the ranks of modern world powers by defeating the forces of Spain, one of the oldest European empires. The Spanish-American War's official purpose was to help Cubans free themselves from Spanish colonialism. Early in 1898, President McKinley sent the battleship Maine to Havana to demonstrate American interest in Cuba. It blew up on February 15th, killing 266 sailors. U.S. newspapers, some of which had called for the acquisition of Cuba as early as the 1850s, screamed for military reprisal. On April 20th, Congress declared war on Spain. Fighting began on May 1st, in the Philippines, where a rebellion against Spanish rule was already in progress. By the time the war ended in August, U.S. troops had also invaded Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam and Wake Island, and Congress had annexed Hawaii. Under the peace Treaty, the United States acquired Puerto Rico, Guam and the Philippines as colonies, and the U.S. military administered Cuba until an independent government was formed. U.S. governors abolished local councils, revised laws, and even changed the island's name to Puerto Rico, easier for English speakers to pronounce. In 1900, Congress made Puerto Rico non-incorporated territory. In the Philippines, the United States faced an armed movement for independence that controlled most of the archipelago under leadership of Emilio Aguinaldo, the Revolutionary Congress wrote a constitution and the Philippine Republic was inaugurated on January 1899. Within days, U.S. forces moved against the Republican Army, commencing a three-year war that involved 126,000 American troops. On July 4, 1902, Washington declared the war won. But new rebellions gathered and fighting continued for another 12 years. Overseas expansion was not a novel idea. The United States had seized the island of Navassa from Haiti in 1858, purchased Alaska from Russia in 1867, and the same year claimed midway in the Pacific. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.